Hello, everyone, and welcome to High Performance Pathways. This is episode 18, and I'm your host, Court Whitman. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Notecast app. Use the Notecast app to save snippets of podcasts as digital notes so you never forget all those thoughts, ideas, and aha moments that come to you listening to a podcast just like this. You can find the Notecast app in the Apple Store or on Google Play. And if you enjoy this podcast and this conversation with my guest, please explore more about me at courtwhitman.com. For all the new listeners out there, High Performance Pathways is a purpose-built and specially selected collection of someone's experience as they discuss how they understand, discover, and chase high performance in their own life. This content is collected during a one-on-one interview and then shared with you. Why? Because I believe deep within my heart that everyone has a different path to high performance. And hearing about the paths that other professionals have journeyed along is informative and it's inspiring. During each episode of High Performance Pathways, it's my intent to do five things for you, the listener. Number one, connect. Connect you to someone else to build relationship. Number two, question to understand. Number three, share to raise perspective. Number four, teach to increase competence. And number five, inspire. Inspire you to trigger your growth. And one additional note to cover as you continue listening today. This podcast is raw, meaning there's no post-production editing. We record live and we deliver it to you exactly as we laid it down. I'm super excited about my guest today, and her name is Ashley Sogi. Ashley is an Army veteran having served in a number of challenging positions and assignments to include Special Operations Civil Affairs Team Leader for the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. In the Army, Ashley excelled in a number of areas. I'm just going to highlight a few for you. Number one, she was selected for and graduated in the top 5% of 100 graduates of the U.S. Army's demanding 12-month Special Operations Civil Military Qualification course. And this course is demanding and focused on project management, cross-cultural communication, organizational and human network design, and advanced negotiation techniques. Number two, she authored and published the article, and I'm quote here, civil information sharing in the gray zone, end quote. And this was published in Special Warfare Magazine, a magazine I've read a lot throughout my years in 2016. And three, she authored and published the article, and I quote, NATO Center of Excellence, Defense Against Terrorism, end quote, at the Information Sharing as a Comprehensive Approach to Counterterrorism, Terrorism Experts Conference in 2017. If that's not enough for you, Ashley speaks three languages, English, Spanish, and French, and she is the recipient of the 2018 Young Professionals in Foreign Policy Veteran Leadership Award. Before joining the Army, Ashley graduated from the University of Portland with a BA in Political Science and Spanish, where in 2006, she was a West Point Olmsted Scholar to Japan. Ashley transitioned out of the Army in 2017 and into a role as associate with J.P. Morgan Chase. She's a passionate volunteer, an advocate for diversity and inclusion, so much so that she's the director of operations at Promote Leadership and a project manager for Waves for Water. In 2019, Ashley was selected for and is currently an NBA candidate at the Wharton School, which is exactly how we connected together. And I'm very grateful 
for our mutual friend, a guy named Nick Schroback, who's a, a classmate of Ashley's there at Wharton and a former client of mine who made this connection. So thanks, Nick, if you're out there listening. Ashley, thank you so much for carving out this time in a busy schedule, grinding out there at Wharton to have this conversation with me and to kind of be a gift to our listeners as we talk together about high performance. Thank you, Cord. I feel so fortunate to be chatting with you. Absolutely. Hey, look, girl, you are specially selected. This thing is purpose-built, and there's nobody else we want to have in this conversation today than you. So thank you so much again. Hey, I'd like to begin uh, with a conversation about your service in the Army, because that's a place that means so much to me. Um, and I'm just, I always love to kind of inquire into what is it that inspired someone else? Because I know what the answer is for me, but what inspired you to join the Army? And like me, what inspired you later in your career to take it to the next level and assess and subject yourself to special operations, specifically the training that you decided to commit to to be a civil affairs team leader for the U.S. Army Special Operations Command? This is always such a fun question to answer because it's two-part. I was so inspired by the idea of leadership in the military and specifically in the Army where you are out front in front of people and you're managing talent and doing really difficult things with them. And I was just so attracted to that from a very early age. I'm sure Hollywood and movies played a big part in that, but I just thought that this was such a unique way to get like real leadership experience in front of real people in the most demanding environments. And I think that just extremely appealed to me. And then on the other hand, I was also just raised in general, um, in my family to value service and the concept of a noble pursuit in life. The idea that we should be doing something very purposeful with our life's work and the military, although just one of many ways to do that, I think there are many professions out there. For me, I just felt that I was like best suited for this. And then, gosh, soft special operations. Um, you know, it's so funny when I, when I look back, uh, I have to be honest and say that initially it was probably a little bit of ego, right? The idea that I should be doing something more challenging. What's the next step? I'd spent just a little over two years in the army. I was overseas in Korea. I was an intelligence officer and I was just looking for the next challenge um, when this kind of came across my, my radar. But I was also being encouraged by other people to apply and I didn't probably have a very solid understanding of what the role would be with civil affairs. I had a much better idea of what the culture change would be. And that's what I was really most focused on. People were telling me, hey, you're really comfortable with ambiguity. You like challenging the default and asking all of these questions. Um, and you're really interested in, in the gray area of a problem. Uh, those values aren't always commonplace in the conventional military. And so I was encouraged by a number of people to apply to special operations because of that potential culture fit. Mm, I love it. And I'm just sitting here kind of smiling to myself as I'm listening to you reflect here on what inspired you to the Army. Because I can tell you without a doubt, you're just bringing up the word Hollywood 
and good gracious, I get fired up because I tell you, when, I, I remember sitting around with my close friend, Aaron Boykin, when I was freaking 13 years old and I was at Fort Bragg here because our parents were assigned and uh, me and Aaron would watch Rambo all the time and we'd watch anything that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in and we made a commitment at a young age to be soldiers one day. So, hey, that stuff's powerful. Movies are powerful. Social media is powerful. I guarantee there's stuff out there right now that's inspiring the next generation. But, but, but what I really heard from you, I mean, that was kind of the comical piece, but I certainly identified with it and, and it does inspire us. It was just this desire to, to experience leadership within that environment. Um, I also heard a hint of adventure. And then I love the way you said that you were just raised um, in the noble pursuit and life. I've never really heard those words in combination like that together, but I love it. And I almost takes me back to like a Robin Hood of Lakshley moment. You know, that word noble makes me always think uh, about something like that. So, so thanks so much for sharing where that inspiration comes from in you. And then really just the vulnerability you stepped into in the moment when you talked about soft and you said, hey, kind of an ego. Um, I think you're just a challenge seeker, right? I think that you're just wanting to be among the very best in your chosen profession. And I think that's uh, an element of high performance. Um, and it's clearly you've done that at a number of level, levels. And you didn't do it alone, right? You were encouraged. And then I think this last point about you talked about the culture that you were explained to and maybe you saw from afar and soft. But I think that's one of the most powerful things that brings people into the community. And what we're talking about here is fit. And I think fit might be something we return to as things move forward. But thanks so much for sharing that out. Um, I want to continue here because, you know, there's a ton of folks that, uh, that check in with us here on this podcast. And they just love hearing about people's life experiences. And, you know, you're a graduate of the Civil Affairs Qualification Course with follow-on service in the Middle East, in the Levant, and in Europe. So I'm super curious in this moment, you know, could you share or think about what your most memorable moment from your time in special operations was? Yeah, I, I think speaking of vulnerability, this is probably something that hits very close to home for me. Um, it, it's very much the human dynamic. It, it wasn't on a deployment to any particular country. It was, um, it's the fact that I'm a big believer in second chances for people. And it's because I, almost didn't make it into special operations because at the very beginning, you know, the first, the first hurdle to really get through is to go to the army airborne school where you learn to jump out of a plane. And I overtrained before it showed up injured and broke both of my legs on my first jump. And that should have been the end for me. Like no, most people don't want to go back after an experience like that for probably very good reason. And I really fought, had to fight outside of the, the normal system. And I had a very strong advocate, Lieutenant Colonel Roy Tisdale, who uh, really was the, per he, he wasn't in special operations. He was somebody who helped me and gave me a second chance. And so because of that experience super early on, uh, later in my career, it was after my team leader time, I was working um, in a more administrative position on staff. I was working strategy for my organization. And I was building a larger team on that staff. And when I was looking for who to bring in, there was a great candidate, um, but he needed a second chance. And by offering him a position on the team to do really big, meaningful work for our organization, that was his second chance that I didn't feel he was going to get um, with some other leaders in my, in, in my unit. 
And I, I feel like I just drew on that experience when Roy Tisdale gave me that opportunity and I gave it to many other people throughout my career. I think it's, it's definitely a hallmark of my time in SOF. It was a place where I could give people second chances and they could use that to really shine. Um, and this individual is doing very, very well. He's, he's excelling and he's still in the military. Mm. First of all, I'm blown away by the story here around breaking both legs uh, and then returning to airborne school. Um, so good gracious, girl, you are hard charging. Um, <laughs> but I'm also really moved by, you know, in this response and, and with all these incredible places that you've been and what you've done and what you've accomplished just in this reflection on getting through this qualification course in those 12 months. It was about a, a person or about people that you recall. And it's funny because I'm sitting here listening to you and, and I do this a lot and I reflect um, when what's being shared. And, I, and it, it reminded me of this one particular moment when I was a young lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division. I was at the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment and I had a, a platoon of combat medics. This was before I moved into Special Forces. And there was a young man and I was young, single, and all we did was train and play flag football in the fall. Seriously, I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so um, I had this kid, his name was Antoine Schuford, and he was lightning fast, incredibly talented. We were crushing people out there on the flag football field. And he came to me one day and said, hey, sir, um, would you support an educational drop for me in early out? I want to go to college. And we're only talking like three months, like his termination date was in October, but he had to get in August to start school. And I was like, 100%. So I went in, I argued the case to the battalion XO, and he got his early op approved. This was before the war. And um, basically, uh, he was gone. Never saw him again, right? I ran into him 13 years later at Fort Benning, coming through the gym. And when we saw each other, we, knew, we recognized each other immediately. He walked up to me, and this is what he shared with me in that moment. He said, Court, I got to tell you, one of the things that you told me when we last spoke to each other, these words have never left my mind. He said, help people when you can. And he said, I want to tell you about my story. I went on to Methodist University. I was a two-sport athlete in football and track and field. And, oh, by the way, I went to play for the Baltimore Ravens for four years on the practice squad. And now I'm married to a government civilian here in Fort Brenning, and I'm kind of running and managing my own business. So it's incredible the impact that we can have in some cases on people's lives. And I appreciate you creating this space for me to kind of go into the story um, because I was just so moved by you reflecting on how important and how powerful people have been when you had a chance to go through those experiences. So, Hey, let's get back to you. This is your episode. Let me share with me, when you think about the Army holistically, what was your favorite assignment and why? Oh, um, I mean, it has to be one overseas, right? Because that's where we're actually doing our job. Um, I, I talk about it all the time, but my favorite assignment was as a civil affairs team leader in Turkey for a variety of reasons. Um, I was there in 2015, and so... It was, it was very much a transition period in our political relations with Turkey and our military relations because we were just starting to stand up the train and equip program for the Syrian moderate opposition forces. And it was just such an exciting time to be there and also very challenging because talk about special operations culture, people being comfortable with the gray and ambiguity and 
not really having a, um, a, a, a full understanding of, you know, what success is going to look like on the ground, yet we show up and we make it happen. I think that was a perfect example of it. I was working with the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development primarily and liaising with our special operations forces that were coming on ground at that point. And it was rewarding for a number of reasons because even in a conflict as protracted as Syria, you could see, you know, small glimpses of hope in the lives that you impact, but it was also an exceptional place to really innovate when it came to what civil affairs could contribute on the ground. Um, and so a lot of my focus was, was on how we aligned and developed the political opposition in Syria to make sure it was aligned with the security force development that was going on. It was super challenging having to you know, work with people from different organizations every day and, and try and find points of integration. It was incredibly rewarding and it was also incredibly frustrating most days. Uh, so to go from highs and lows like that, I, I reflect back on that experience um, all the time. Yeah, it's so interesting. Isn't it funny how sometimes the things that frustrated us the most is what we remember the most? Because I think a lot of folks will say, hey, you know, I just love solving wicked problems. And maybe that was a wicked problem for you. And that's why it was so memorable. But what an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Hey, share with me in your own words, because I serve a lot of folks in transition, and we'll talk about your transition, at least, I mean, I think life's a constant state of transition, to be honest, but there's one pretty specific here for you, which was the decision to leave the Army. I mean, we're talking about all these great experiences, and uh, you made a decision um, to to end your your service term um, and and pursue something different, specifically your your MBA there at Wharton. Um, can you share a little bit with the listeners? Because I think a lot of people struggle with this. Like I know I did. I think I thought about it a bunch of times throughout the tenure uh, in the army. Is it the right time to go? Is it the right time to stay? Um, and I just think it's cool for people to get some insight into you and, and just how you see the world. Why was it that you decided to leave and pursue that MBA? Yeah, this was such an agonizing decision for me. I left just over the 10 year mark in the military, which is maybe a little bit less common. I think you either see people leave around the five or six year mark um, when they're still fairly junior or you see people through a full retirement. I agree. But it was really, really tough for me to leave. Um, and ultimately I think I, I left soft for many of the same reasons that I joined it. I was looking for, for the new challenge. I had found that I had become very comfortable with the uncomfortable aspects of special operations, if that makes sense. And when you are uncomfortable, you learn the most, I, I believe, or at least for myself, that's been the case. And so I needed to find my next uncomfortable place in life, if that makes sense. Um, I was ready to grow and learn again. And at the same time, I was really developing this pretty deep passion for defense innovation on kind of two fronts. I was really focused on organizational culture, like in special operations, why we were making the decisions we did, how we innovated, um, what, our, what our structures looked like. And then I was also interested in the technology aspect because I worked for a while with the Palantir team, rolling that out for our teams in Europe. Um, and so I started to become very, very interested in this. And I sort of had a choice. Do I 
stay inside my organization to affect the change and have the impact I want? Or do I need to leave to have greater influence? Mm. And that's, I think, what was so agonizing for me. I had to be, I had to really dig deep and think honestly about the types of leadership positions I could hope to hold in special operations as both a civil affairs soldier, but also as a woman. And there were some barriers there. And ultimately, it kind of comes down, do you stay and you slowly carve out a path for others to affect change? Or do you leave and maybe more rapidly make changes, but it's admittedly as an outsider? And so I chose the latter path. I decided I could probably have more impact and influence from the outside. Um, and that's ultimately, that's ultimately why, why I left. Mm. What a what what a great story. Um let's continue talking a little bit um about you know your transition and and maybe clearly you were very deliberate in your approach. It was something you thought through incredibly and I mean you just want to make an impact and you felt like the best way to fulfill that for yourself was it was time to go. Um certainly a loss for the army but uh a win for, you know, American generals. So uh tip my hat to you but could you share any advice Ashley, in this moment for, for other folks that are serving right now um, and women especially who may be considering transition out of the Army or the military in general? Yeah. Um, I, you know, the, the, the big reason that I mentioned about, you know, searching for the next uncomfortable experience is why I went into finance and why I ended up in an MBA program. Those were both uncomfortable projections for me, if that makes sense. It wasn't my background. A public policy degree would have been much more in line with what I'd been doing the last couple of years. And I chose <laughs> to take this super strong pivot. And there was so much value in that. It was very hard. Uh, it is a very humbling experience to join a new organization. For me, that was JP Morgan and pursue one of the hardest jobs that I could in finance and join a team and have all of these wonderful life experiences, but not have all of the technical skills that I needed to leverage them. It took so much humility and I'm so grateful for that experience and I'm grateful for the people who gave me that opportunity. And so I think, well, you know, reflecting back, humility is a huge part of that equation. Just being humble enough to let your guard down and truly connect with the people um, that are, you know, in the, w whatever new environment you end up in. And I think one of the elements to that, to bring it like a little bit more tangible, you know, make it more tangible for people is the way I viewed my identity. My primary identity, once I transitioned, I did not view myself as a veteran first and foremost. And that took a lot of deliberate work. There's a lot of reflection um, as I was getting out and even once I was in the private sector workforce. I really thought about what are my other identities? What are the other elements that I want to bring out? The private sector loves to call it, you know, what's your brand? But I think, I think it has so much more meaning for people that have done public service to think about it in terms of what are my identities and then using that to connect to people. I think it can be incredibly challenging for a veteran specifically to transition from public sector to private sector if you still hold that veteran identity primary and first and foremost. It can be hard to connect with people. 
Yeah, I love it. What what a great reflection here. And I think I just, I heard, I heard, and I think our listeners may have heard something different, but let me just share out what I heard from you when you considered, you know, what advice might you be able to share based on your experience with someone else considering transitioning out of the military. And I think the first thing I heard from you is really, you worked hard to identify what it was that you wanted to do next. And for you, that happened to be a pivot, pretty significant one. And therefore you identified some technical, maybe gaps, and then you, so you had to step into that with some of your learnings. That was the first thing that I heard was, you know, really identify what you want to do. And if it means you need to break, bridge some gaps with some education, then seek those things out. The second thing I heard from you was, hey, stay humble when you get to your new team, your new tribe, wherever you land. And then the third thing I heard here was, was quite a bit about, you know, uh, seeking to understand an identity. Um, you used the word brand, which I think is very powerful. And, you know, uh, you, you made kind of a, um, an encouragement here that, you know, it's got to go beyond what you and you did kind of as a soldier um, in kind of the private sector. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I would say here is uh, I do do quite a bit of coaching around identity exploration because I think folks struggle just like you shared here. Um, but it's just really identifying those core values, I think, is a really helpful thing. Um, for folks, it's helpful for me, and then search for value alignment um, with that new place in which you land. And I think that can be helpful because, you know, the answer to the question, who are you as a woman walking this earth is, is, is most likely not, hey, well, I'm an old soldier, right? No, that's part of your experience, but that's not who you are, right? You're, you're so much more than that. But you decided to use your, your unique skills and talents to be a soldier for a certain season of your life. And so I think that kind of question and that thought process is what allows us to move into an identity that's so much deeper than just what we do. And I think that's powerful. So thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing out those things for folks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a, a passion that I believe that you have, um, and it's specifically associated with the work you do with Promote Leadership. Um, I know you're the director of operations there, and I'm just curious, would you consider sharing the mission of Promote Leadership with the listeners and, and how this organization that you're a critical piece of serves others? And you can really take that anywhere you want, but just I would love to learn about this organization, and I think people listening would, would enjoy that sharing. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Promote is a huge um, passion project for me and two other women that both come from special operations. We all met on the same deployment in Afghanistan. And the, the organization was really born out of a, a key question about attrition from special operations. We noticed some super high quality people were choosing to leave. And we were kind of asking that question, why? And what could we maybe do about that? And so we've been in existence for a couple years now, and we are helping now even more broadly than special operations, although that is still our focus. We're helping national security, security leaders leverage diversity and inclusive cultures to really drive innovation. Gets back to two of my points of passion being diversity and inclusion and innovation, and particularly in defense and national security. Um, so we're, we're um, partnered with and, and going and assist a number of organizations, primarily in special operations, kind of work through some of these tricky problem sets that I think affect an organization anywhere on the spectrum. But we're all coming from soft. It's our passion. 
um, and we're really devoted to helping that community excel. I think that to meet future threats, this is, this is really an area that special operations needs to focus on in the coming years. And even, even when I think back to my original, you know, the source of my motivation or inspiration to even join the military, the fact that that was, you know, Hollywood potentially at its, at the earliest inception, I was still watching movies about, you know, men in these hero roles. And there really weren't many female figures, strong female figures. I would love to see more women inspiring other women to join and excel because that that type of diversity is truly what's going to make us great and keep us elite year on year. Yeah, awesome. Um, congratulations to you in this work. It's, it's really interesting. I have a daughter now, right? And I think for me, certainly being a man walking this earth, being one of four brothers with one sister, um, you know, I, I don't know that I did a good job of really understanding this when I was young. Um, I, I was also a guy that w- went to Virginia Military Institute, and I saw the first two years of an all-male institution. And then I saw the state make a decision where they said, nope, we're allowing women to come in to this military college uh, because it makes sense. It's the right thing to do. Life exists in and around incredible women. So why not get them in there to school? And then my, my final two years in college, I saw the first introduction of women coming into the core. Um, and so, uh, but, but until I had my own daughter, I don't know that I did a good job of really understanding this. And you look at some things that I'm, I'm more, I'm ever mindful of now um, that's out there just kind of, I guess, in our society in general, you have like Wonder Woman as a movie. That's awesome, right? There's a superhero, a woman, powerful lead in, you got Captain Marvel, right? And so, so I think we're beginning to have more of this out there and leading. Um, and I hope that it continues. And I hope that your work that you do with promote leadership continues to have an impact in a positive way for those organizations so that they can perform at a high level. And cause I think it's what we're talking about, right? It's for me, it's all about performance. I'm chasing high performance in my life. And I think most people are looking to do the same. Clearly you are with an airborne qualified lady with two broken legs as part of that history, <laughs> you know? So no, that's absolutely it. And you know, I mean, allyship of any form is at the center of this promote is, is only successful because men in leadership positions have sought our help and supported us. I have been successful throughout my career in multiple areas because of men who have allied and supported me and advocated for me. It's, it's a huge part of this and it's, it's not easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, like I said, wicked problems seems to be something you can do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, That's right. Let's continue here with kind of this, uh, this high performance thing that we're stepping into. And, and certainly with, with all the incredible stuff that was part of just your history, the things that you've done to date with your life, um, you're someone that's been performing at a high level. Uh, and so I always love to ask this question to, to my guests and it's in and around kind of, I guess, some objectivity surrounding the words high performance. I think we hear it all the time. Like, oh, she's a high performer or wow, he did that at a really high level. Um, but, but what does that really mean? And so I'm curious, in your own words, would you share out with the listeners how you would define those words, high performance? Yeah, I, I think this is something that 
really evolved throughout your career as you gain more experience. And so right now, the snapshot where I'm at in my life right now, I feel like it boils down to resilience and courage. It's the resilience to thrive and excel in any environment. And I've seen this both in the military and special operations and also working at JP Morgan. And then it's also the courage to actually go out and learn new things. I think we forget that that actually takes some courage because going back to our whole humility conversation, it takes humility to put yourself in a position where you can actually learn. And I think that is really what differentiates high performers. When you start talking about people that can do it in any environment and they can, they are lifelong learners. Um, my team at JP Morgan had, and the reason I, I gravitated towards them was they had a very similar culture to special operations, and it really included these two things. I love it. And I think so what, what I'm hearing from you here, it's really pretty straightforward for you, Ashley. It's high performance includes resilience and courage. And as you define resilience in this moment, you talk about, you know, how, how do I continue? And you didn't say this, but I'm, I'm kind of, so I'm assuming this for a moment, resilience, because you're going to get your tail knocked down. Somehow your legs are going to get broke, right? Something's going to happen, right? But given the setback, how am I actively looking to continue to thrive and excel through that adversity? How resilient am I? Because if I can do that, then according to you, you can perform at a high level. And then courage as an incredible piece to this and specifically for you oriented to a growth mindset or this commitment to learn new things and that it takes um, humility to step into that. So thanks for sharing that with us. I think it's really important. Certainly resonates with me. Um, and, and let me, let me just ask when you talk about resilience, um, you know, would you care to talk about how you've been able to be resilient? You know, I mean, is there a place that you draw yeah. upon? Is it just, is it innate? And maybe that might be part of it, but I'm always trying to figure out like, you know, can you train it? You know, can you become resilient? Um, any thoughts around resilience you might offer up for others that are looking to be more resilient? in their life? I totally think you can train and tap into it. I think some people, you know, who, who knows why some people may, you know, be a little bit, you know, may naturally incline that direction. Maybe it's how you were raised. Maybe it's a specific experience you had, but I think I totally think you can train it. Um, and I think someone else said this, I did not, but uh, that, that discipline is more important than motivation because motivation is fleeting and the moment I heard that, it was several years ago, uh, I, I totally identified with that comment. I think that's really what it is. Sometimes we, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, we, we, we almost glorify resilience and motivation, if that makes sense. We think mm -hmm. it's this lofty thing. It's not. I think it's discipline. I think it's, you know, having those hard checks with yourself. Uh, you know, we like to say azimuth checks in the military to make sure we're going down the right trajectory and our values are aligned with our actions. I think that's really what brings it together for resilience because it's going to, when you are asked to be resilient, it's going to be a different situation every time. So you can't prepare for it. Mm. You, you have to have these intrinsic kind of capabilities to handle it. And so because of that, I think you, you can train it. 
Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. It's, it's almost like, the, the, in a way, you know, the conversation around leadership. Are leaders born or are they made? Clearly, leadership can be developed um, or we wouldn't have so many people doing it, right? Resiliency is no different. Mm-hmm. And I think more people are stepping into that space. I mean, heck, me and you experienced a resiliency training module as part of our time in the Army, right? So, so clearly, the Army thinks you can train it and they know that you're going to get kicked in the teeth, you know, often. So we got to be resilient if we're building a force that's capable. Uh, I just want to throw out the listeners right now a book. Uh, author's name is Al Siebert. He's a PhD. He titled a book called The Resiliency Advantage. And 100% in his work, it's all about if you're not resilient, don't worry, you can train it. So taken from Ashley, take it from Al, check that out. There's some good TTPs in there. Again, for anyone who's not in the military, here I go. I'm talking to a veteran. I'm bringing acronyms into the work. <laughs> TTPs. <laughs> And it's a tactic, technique, or procedure for you in your resilience journey. So, hey, let's continue here. I'd love to learn from you um, any habits that you have as part of your life now that you think you can attribute and walk back to your experience in the Army and and these habits that may have stayed with you that help you perform at a high level today in your work. Yeah, I'm currently using one at Wharton um, because this experience can be overwhelming at times. And that's just simple prioritization to survive task saturation. We've all seen it in the military. I think we've seen it, I mean, any any large organization. Um, having to make those hard decisions about priorities and what truly aligns with and supports your primary goal or objective and what is, what is just enhancing or what is maybe even just a distraction, but it is shiny and knowing to put that in a different bucket or list. And so I actually started Wharton with a no list of things that I knew were very interesting, but did not contribute to my end objective. And they, they may come off the no list or I've, I've now translated this no list into things I will explore my second year at Wharton versus my first year. Um, I, I think that's an incredibly hard thing to do because you have to sit down and evaluate what your real goals are and what, what really supports them. Um, and that's, that's 100% something that I learned how to do in the Army, uh, just, just for survival, essentially. Um, and then something else that I really love bringing in from my military experience is the concept of a feedback loop. I think it's something that the military does very well, our after action reviews, and then the way organizations value lessons learned, meaning we value hearing the story of something that went well or went poorly, and then breaking down the methodology for how to replicate that or solve against it. And I, I didn't always see such a proactive Kind of process um, on this uh, on the private sector side, but it's something that I I bring to bear almost daily. I would say, and it's something I really value from my experience. Mm, I love it coming from Ashley. Two things, two habits that's carried her forward in her life post military. One is prioritizing things. And she takes this unique approach with a no list, which I think is really cool. I've heard of a don't do list. And I also have a no list now. So I think that's great. <laughs> They're taking the approach of, you know, prioritizing based upon that. So that's a great habit, great technique to consider. And then second, just feedback, right? Feedback's so powerful, but, but I'd agree with you. I don't know that it's done as well in the private sector as the military. And it's certainly been a gift for me that I've carried with 
myself as I've moved forward. So thank you for those two things. Transition now um, in this moment to talk a little bit about management, because clearly um, from the day of graduation, you were thrown into the military um, and you were immediately a manager in some capacity. And again, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time talking and differentiating management from leadership. I believe leadership is defined simply in the singular word influence and high performing leadership is effective, positive influence. It has absolutely nothing to do with title or position and management, in my opinion, is kind of that supervision of people and or projects in order to accomplish tasks, missions, and assignments. And so kind of given that differentiation between the two, um, you know, would you share with us a few habits that you've practiced as a manager or you've been lucky enough to have a manager that has, that has gifted this stuff to you as, as you reported to her or him, or maybe some things you've seen from afar? Uh, so any habits that you've seen that are foundational to those high-performing managers in your life? Yeah, it's interesting when I reflect on this question, there are two individuals that come to mind immediately. One from J.P. Morgan, uh, my team there, and then one, my, my last position in the military, my direct supervisor, when I was on staff as the strategy officer. And it's this very interesting relationship and balance between a manager's role in kind of inflating the teams under them from distractions and bureaucracy, and then the trade-off that those teams show through their loyalty of performing uh, for showing that manager that, that those efforts kind of paid off. And I think one key element in that is, and I, I guess this transcends management, transcends management to leadership, but the art of showing, not just telling, you have to demonstrate through your action, uh, wh whatever it is that you're trying to influence in terms of, you know, especially, especially when we think about influencing team culture. And my, my manager at JP Morgan, incredible manager, and we had a, a fantastic team with a great culture. And one of the things I felt he did really well at showing, not telling, was a leader any day can, or a manager any day can tell you that Family is important and balancing work and life is important, but he showed it because when he was going to be out of the office to do something for his family, like volunteer in his daughter's classroom at school, which some people might not think that that's as important as what you do on a daily basis when you think about profit and loss for an organization like J.P. Morgan. But he made sure that every time he did something like that or worked from home to support his family, he made sure to tell us. And I think it signaled to the entire team how critical that balance was, no matter what it is that you're balancing after hours. I'm single and don't have a family, but I have other priorities in life. And my family, my nieces and nephews are incredibly important to me. He, he signaled to me that people would be valued for making, that, making sure that that balance was done right. I think that's so important um, for managers when you think about, you know, yeah, it's task management, but you're not going to be focused on a team and able to really dig in and knock that out if your manager isn't showing you that you'll be supported. Mm. Well said, and what a great story. Um, and so the feedback from, from Ashley here on some management high-performing habits that she's experienced in her career, number one, is, hey, there's an art to showing and not just telling, as she reflected on that story. And very well said. I won't, I won't belabor that one anymore. I think it's really important. It's kind of that leadership by example that we hear 
um, and, and much, uh, I think, in my opinion, better words with Ashley's here. And then the second thing that she shared was, hey, you know, high-performing managers protect the team. And they protect the team intentionally so they can get freaking work done, right? But Ashley kind of introduced this idea that when that happens for her, there's an incredible amount of loyalty that kind of just begins to show up in her own life when she works for someone who does that. So if you're managing out there right now, if you're a first-time manager, if you're a veteran manager, if you want to manage but aren't doing it yet, and someone asks you, hey, what do good managers do? Hey, maybe take these things from, from Ashley and shine. So thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, last question I have that I'd love to go through with you here kind of takes it from, you know, we talked about you as an individual and what you do uh, to be successful. You shared out some things on some management. I'd like to talk now about the collective team. Um, you've been part of a team, number of teams, and, and clearly have some insight to what it takes to team well. So are there any habits that you've experienced that are foundational to high-performing teams? This has really evolved for me over the years, and I I have really settled on two things that probably aren't talked about a whole lot, um, but I think they should be. The first is empathy, the ability to take different perspectives. And I look at this in a variety of ways, the empathy and just leading on a human level, but also empathy in terms of what it takes to be truly innovative which you know is a pretty big passion of mine, especially in defense. And I think if innovation is about exposing yourself to as many diverse experiences as possible, in order to do that, you, ha you truly do have to have empathy and put yourself, have the ability to put yourself in the other's position and observe the world from their viewpoint. Um, and then the second element I explored a lot in my last job in the military and that was the element of psychological safety and the impact that it can have on a team. I think this is something that just takes a high-performing team and catapults it into the next level. I think when you experience this type of, this sense of safety with the people that you work with, um, you're more willing to take risks, good risks. You're more willing to learn and be humble. You're willing to challenge the default and actually do, as you say, and something I love, really tackle the wicked problems in life. I think in order to do all of those things, there is this element that you have to establish as a leader and in influence um, in terms of valuing and establishing psychological safety in that team. And it's so interesting because I've seen that, I've seen that here in Wharton from day one. There's, there's a huge emphasis on that and I've seen it pay off now that I'm a little more than halfway through my first semester. I've seen that pay off in every team that I've worked on here at school, and I can see how people are going to take that into the real world beyond school. <clears throat> I love the uh, I love the sharing, and you, you have such incredible words that you try that that you use um, here in this conversation that that really resonate with me. I don't know that I've ever heard psychological safety before. Um, if I was to make a a, a stab at defining it. I might say that we're talking about fulfillment here, but I'm not sure. I think it's maybe more than that. Um, and what's interesting, at least as I reflect on you sharing this habit to high-performing teams, I think it's different, right? So like if you're, if you're managing a team, um, you kind of got to explore on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis what that looks like for each person. Do I get that right, Ashley? Is that what you're saying or am I way off on that? No, no, I, 
I think that's right. That, that's right on court. Um, it, it ultimately lies in trust and you're mm-hmm. going to develop that differently on the content, depending on the context, you know, where, where you're at in the organization, how long that team is going to be together. Sometimes we're thrown onto teams and we've got a high impact mission and we have very little time to, to achieve it. And you're going to move on to another team after that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it totally depends on the context, but However you go about establishing that sense of safety in a team, I think is very important. Um, And I I think there's a variety of ways to do it. Absolutely. Uh, I do too. Um, And I would just offer up that if you're striving for psychological safety, one thing to consider is invest time in four particular areas or foundations that I've seen to be successful, especially as it relates to Ashley's kind of description of it's all about trust care how caring am i reliability can you depend upon me over time sincerity am i real authentic and genuine in my engagements with the people on the team and competence i have to still be competent and a buddy of mine andre thornton shared this with me a number of years ago and he said hey man you can care a whole lot you can be reliable you can be sincere but if you're not a doctor you're not going in to operate on my sister Right. So, there, right. And, and so there's still a competence. And what's interesting about competence sometimes is we forget about a few things that disrupt competence. I think a, a, a traumatic distressing moment can take someone that's very competent and then throw a wrench in their ability to perform. Uh, you know, there, there's people that want to be really competent, but if there's some sort of a drug use or there's something going on, all of those things impact competence. And so I would just say that those are the four things, in my opinion, that really help potentially build trust and allow this psychological safety to exist as Ashley so incredibly introduced to us here. And the other thing was empathy. And I think what I wrote down from you as you shared that, two things came to mind. I heard it kind of as part of a story earlier and just your predisposition to give people a second chance. That's kind of grounded in your empathy. Am I right? That's right. Yeah, right. So, so it's actually playing out in practice for you. And I think when I try to define the word empathy, it's all in how, how am I seeking to understand? And so uh, wonderful things you talked about here and shared. And I think they're powerful. So I appreciate you, you giving that to us. Hey, I think that's a wrap. I think we can, we can let you roll back there to do incredible things at Wharton. Uh, thanks so much for spending this time and being a gift today. Uh, for the listeners, would love to invite you to break us on out and get into our day in the way that we always do it here on High Performance Pathways. And what that is, is it's just bringing some energy uh, into the closure here. And I do that by offering you to uh, execute that breakdown. And it goes like this. I'm going to speak the words breakdown on three. And then I'll count one, two, three. And, that, and when you hear three, that's your invitation to give us three claps, clap, 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 Followed by the words, boom shakalaka. All right? All right, let's do it. You got it? <laughs> Any questions, <laughs> Ashley? No, no. Uh-oh. Here's my challenge. I challenge you to say boom shakalaka without smiling or laughing. I ain't seen anyone that can do it yet. But here we go. <laughs> All right. Hey, breaking us out here on High Performance Pathways, this is Ashley Sobe, episode 18, breakdown, Ashley, on three. One, Two, three. Boom shakalaka. We crushed it. 
That's right. That's right, girl. We freaking <laughs> crushed it. Hey, to connect with Ashley, you can certainly find her on LinkedIn at Ashley Sogi, and that's spelled S-O-G-G-E. And you can find this episode and more episodes of High Performance Pathways at my website, courtwomen.com, or hey, just search us up on any podcast platform that you're listening to, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, simply listed as High Performance Pathways. Now, take what Ashley gifted us in this moment and get out there, everybody, and chase high performance in your life.